If you're looking to promote unity in the church, you might be tempted to avoid topics like race and injustice. Even mentioning them stirs up a range of emotions among God's people. However, if the church is to pursue the kind of unity that Christ calls us to, a unity that includes diverse ethnicities, perspectives, political views, etc., then it is essential that God's people find their ultimate unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, we invite you to explore our thousands of gospel-centered resources over at our website, Radical.net. In this message from Psalm 133, a message that was prompted by the conversation surrounding the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, David Platt and Mike Kelsey urged the church to look to the gospel to find unity in diversity. Several pastors and their wives also share their perspectives on recent events in this unique message concerning race, justice, and the gospel. So here is Unity in Diversity from Psalm 133. Well, welcome to those of you who are watching. Uh, Wherever you're watching from, we are glad to be gathered together virtually uh, around God's Word. And if you have been uh, just staying connected with us as McLean Bible Church for a while, you realize you are seeing something different on stage right now. You are seeing not just one long-winded preacher, but two long-winded preachers. And we're going to attempt to do something today that at least I've never done before, and that is tag team preach a sermon. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about unity and diversity. We'll be in Psalm 133, uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be talking about unity and diversity, uh, but specifically what we believe uh, is necessary, what we believe is going to be required in order for us to experience Christ-exalting unity in the midst of diversity in the church. As David mentioned last Sunday, in light of recent events in our country, uh, as well as where God has us in our Bible reading plan, we felt compelled to address what the facts show is one of the biggest threats to our unity in the church, and that's issues of race and justice. And what we're going to talk about uh, and what we're going to walk through together will likely bring up all kinds of different emotions and different thoughts. But I want to assure you that our goal in these next few minutes is to address these issues with biblical truth and pastoral sensitivity. You know, even though this is a difficult topic, we want this to feel like a family conversation, just like you often have to have difficult conversations with your family. And speaking of family, we believe that as a church, it's our responsibility to help equip the next generation to understand race and justice from a biblical perspective. But for those of you who are parents, we also realize that you might want to be the one uh, to introduce these topics to your children. So if you're watching with your kids, we would encourage you uh, to either use this time, this message as a way to engage your kids, or if you think it's best, feel free to just pause now and come back to this message sometime when you're alone. Most of you are aware by now of a situation that has overtaken headlines over the last week and a half. A young black man named Ahmad Arbery was uh, running through a neighborhood just outside Brunswick, Georgia, and he was chased down, 
shot and killed by two white men. The men were eventually charged with murder and aggravated assault about two and a half months uh, after the incident, but only after uh, the video uh, went viral last Tuesday. Now, the point of our time together isn't to evaluate all the details of that particular tragedy, but as many people have said, the local officials didn't bring charges because they saw the video, but because we, the American public, saw the video. And that actually has been the crux of the public outrage. We're not going to adjudicate what happened in that case. We're praying for the Lord to bring justice as that case continues to unfold. But the reality is that since then, there are new similar tragedies resulting in new headlines. And as expected, those headlines have sparked a very common cycle of deep pain and outrage met by denial and bitter debate. And that vicious cycle churns not just in the culture, but in our church. You've probably seen that cycle in your conversations on social media, maybe in our church before. And and not just when it comes to situations that aggravate black, white tensions in our country, but that same cycle tends to churn in response to a variety of racial justice issues. And we want to allow God's word and his spirit to guide us and change us as we think about these things. And so before we read Psalm 133, Would you just take a moment, just take a moment to surrender whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling in this moment to God, just between you and the Lord. Just imagine giving those thoughts and feelings to the Lord. And would you just invite him through his word to speak to you and invite him to do whatever work he wants to do in your heart. Take a minute between you and God. Well, Father, we are gathered under the authority of your word. And God, we invite you to speak to our hearts. And Lord, we know that your word is living and it is active, it is powerful, and it always accomplishes everything that you send it forth to accomplish. And so God, would you accomplish your work in our hearts as we sit under your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So with that prayer, let's hear from God's word. Psalm chapter 133. Hopefully you have it in front of you, but I'll put it up on the screen just in case you don't. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I just think about this, that we would be in this text on this week in our Bible reading. And we would read these three simple verses. And based on them, we want to show us as a church two significant truths about unity in diversity. So you might write them down. Here's the the first one. According to God's word, 
Unity and diversity is something that God requires and we desire. Unity and diversity, it's kind of a loaded statement here, we're gonna unpack it all, is something God requires and we desire. So let me show that to you specifically in what we just read. So Psalm 133 is a song of ascents, which means God would, God's people would sing it together as they would travel up to Jerusalem for a feast or a festival. So you'd have different people, individuals, families from different places coming together, singing this psalm in unity. So this is a powerful picture of unity and diversity. You had difference. So when we hear brothers dwelling in unity, picture these brothers and sisters from different tribes, from the tribe of Judah over here, from the tribe of Simeon, from the tribe of Asher. Each tribe has its way of doing certain things, its approach to this or that. But then they would come together and there was this remarkable unity. Like they were at home together. They experienced unity even as they expressed diversity. Let me say that one more time. They experienced unity even as they expressed diversity. So that's why we're using that language, unity in diversity. Not unity that denies diversity or ignores diversity, but unity that appreciates and values diversity. And verse one here, Psalm 133 says that unity and diversity like this is good and it's pleasant. So think about that. It's good, it's right, meaning, so that's where we get God requires it. It is right and good. And it is also pleasant, which means we desire it. Or maybe another way to put that, it's good, which means it's something we ought to pursue. Like God calls us to pursue this kind of unity. We ought to pursue it. And it's pleasant, which means we want to pursue it. Like we want this kind of unity. God requires it, we desire it. So, We read this this week as a church, and obviously I know not everybody who's uh, listening in right now is a part of NBC, but think about this when it comes to your church family and even us as the broader church, but but thinking even specifically about NBC. We have over 100 different countries represented among us. So many different ethnicities with diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives. And even within our ethnicities, obviously not all Caucasians or African-Americans or Asian-Americans have the same experiences or even think the same way. And here's one of the challenges. As I've talked with some people in our church, I've heard from people, particularly from different ethnicities than me, who say that while they love NBC, they still oftentimes feel like welcomed guests in this church family. Like Mike and I have talked about this before. So What does that mean when you hear or even say the term welcomed guests or hear that from others? What does that mean? Yeah, it's it's an analogy that came really out of my uh, reflecting on my personal experience. And I found that it, it captures what a lot of people feel in predominantly white churches. 
Uh, oftentimes, people of color are welcomed into predominantly white churches. The leaders are nice. Uh, the people are nice. We're invited to be involved. And for the most part, it's a good experience. Now, that, that's not always true by any means. Sometimes, for some people, it's a horrible experience. But the point is that even when it is a good experience, there's often still this underlying feeling that I'm in the house, but it's not my home. It's like a bed and breakfast, right? I, I, I get to eat at the table. I can use all the amenities. I even get a bed and a room, but the menu is predetermined. My pictures aren't on the wall. I can't rearrange the furniture. I can't change the paint color. I'm just a welcomed guest. And that feeling is more than just a feeling. It's a reality that many people have written about, and it's been confirmed most recently in Dr. Corey Edwards' Research. She's a Christian sociologist who's leading the largest research study on diversity in churches. And she summarizes her research this way. These are her words. She says, in short, I propose that interracial churches work, that is, they remain racially integrated to the extent that they are first comfortable places for whites to attend. Now, let that sink in for a minute. She says, interracial churches, churches like McLean Bible Church and others like it only work to the extent that they are first comfortable places for whites to attend. And it's not just related to things like cultural preferences or diversity in leadership. The reality that we're welcomed guests, the, when we often feel like welcome guests, it becomes most clear and most painful when we try to raise issues of justice. I guess I could summarize it this way. For people of color, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, it feels like our presence is welcomed but not our perspectives or our priorities. So I hear that and everything in me just wants to say no, like this is, this is not my house, this is not a house for white people that other people are welcome in, like no, like this is our house where all of God's people are not just welcome like a guest, but you actually feel at home in a way that is even greater than any one of us might experience if we were just with people who all look or think like us. So here's what we wanna do at this point. Uh, yes, we wanna walk through this word together, Mike and myself as pastors, but we also wanna pause and hear from some other perspectives in the church. So Mike and I asked a few different pastors and their wives from different ethnicities to get together for part one of a multi-part conversation this week about unity and diversity, particularly as it relates to race and justice. So you can actually find that whole conversation and it's just part one and it's a little over an hour, but we've got it up at mcleanbible.org slash race. So mcleanbible.org slash race. For now, we just want you to hear some small samples from different people's perspectives on unique challenges that various ethnicities face in our culture. And there are so many caveats I wanna mention here. I'll, I'll mention a, a couple of big ones. Like one, I wanna be clear, Mike and I are not saying, and these pastors and their wives are not saying, that they represent everyone in their ethnicity. 
Uh, I just mentioned, even within a certain ethnic group, we know there are many different perspectives. So that's one big caveat. Another one is we've not included every single ethnic group. Uh, I mean, when you think about over 100 different countries in our church, we'd be here a really, really long time. So it's not every single ethnic group represented. And then one other thing I, w- I would say, we ask these pastors and their wives to feel freedom to share honestly, to, to be raw in a sense. And one of the reasons we oftentimes don't feel comfortable talking about these things is because many people are afraid of what others will think if we really share how we feel. Like there's a risk in putting yourself out there in that way. So in sharing, these brothers and sisters are taking a risk that I trust we as a church family will honor and listen to and learn from. So, so with those caveats, and we could do a ton more, let me just start uh, uh, by inviting you to hear from Eric and Janique Saunders. So Eric pastors our Arlington location, and we asked Eric and Janique specifically to describe their thoughts when they heard about Ahmad Arbery's death. So listen with us. When I heard about the death of Ahmad Arbery, uh, feelings of fear yet again came to the surface. Um, it was a reminder for me that what I feel like to be irrational thoughts are actually possible. Um, The three most important people in my life, my husband and my two sons, could actually be perceived as threats because of how they look, and their lives could be taken away from them. Um, So in the case of Ahmaud Albury and so many other cases that are similar, um, these cases are not far-off stories for me. I take... Every unjust death of an unarmed black man personal, and I have to grieve each one. And so today I continue to grieve as I wonder if my brothers and sisters in Christ understand the degree to which that weighs on me. Um, I grieve as I wonder if my brothers and sisters in Christ um, understand how that relates to the sanctity of life of my husband and my two sons. And I grieve the precautions that we take as a family and also the conversations that we will have to have with our sons in the future. My wife has set this in the context of how we as a family are processing this, but I want to set it a bit um, broader. Um, There's a lot of people out here who are experiencing grief and sadness and even anger. Uh, If I could uh, give an analogy related to a movie, uh, so many people, when we view the events um, around the death of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, many people would say in order to deal with these events, We need to pause the narrative. We need to freeze frame it. We need to focus on the facts of this case. Uh, We need to focus on these facts disconnected from other racist events in our country's history. However, uh, when I look in the eyes of my mother, uh, or even uh, think about my father, or think about uh, my family, we can't do that. Um, This event is connected to a narrative that has gone, that is as old as our nation's history. Uh, this narrative includes names like Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and Emmett Till and others. And the theme of this sad narrative, sadly, is this, um, that this country, uh, including many people that name Jesus Christ as Lord, uh, could care less about the rights of black lives and could care less about their very lives. 
Those are <clears throat> difficult words to process, uh, but that's why I love being in such a diverse family because we get to learn from each other's perspectives. And this next couple uh, that's going to share their perspective, DJ and Jessica Corky, are legitimately two of my favorite people, uh, period. Uh, they have been uh, so pivotal in my wife and I's just growth as we've thought about and processed these kinds of issues in community. And so we asked DJ and Jess to share how they have personally processed racism in our country from their perspective. So watch this. Well, hey, church family, I'm DJ, and this is my wife, Jessica, and we've been asked to share how we've processed issues of prejudice and racism in our country. And I would say for me, the answer is I'm still processing. I think it's hugely important that we all approach this with as much humility as possible and an openness to say there's always more that I can learn. Uh, moving from a position of ignorance to empathy has been a process for me. Uh, initially, I was very ignorant because of how I grew up in a fairly non-diverse bubble. And then I even moved to a place of willful ignorance because I was so fearful to say the wrong thing or ask the wrong question and then have anger directed at me. It just seemed easier to avoid it altogether. And I know that that's wrong. And through the conviction of the Lord and His grace, He has brought amazing relationships into DJ and my life, people who have helped us to move from a position of ignorance to a greater understanding and an empathy. Um, and that was through their warm and patient walking us through it, mm -hmm. letting us ask lots of questions and dialoguing about it. And not only were we moved to a greater understanding of a perspective we didn't previously have, but something mm -hmm. even more amazing happened. And that was an exchange of trust mm -hmm. and care and love and unity. And so now, when these tragic events happen, I can't avoid it. It's not just a random, isolated event, because people that I deeply care for and love are hurting or are fearful, and I feel it now. And that, for me, has changed everything. Yeah, and I would say uh, I, too, am still processing, and I'm processing primarily in our personal relationships with brothers and sisters who have experienced it. Uh, whose parents have experienced it, whose grandparents were alive when Emmett Till was murdered. And so I've grown to realize that where I grew up with an experience of uh, pride in this country, uh, that many have grown up with an experience of pain in our country. And an analogy that I might give to it is like the three times I've been in the labor delivery room with my wife when she was having our kids. I'm standing there in the room, feeling a little bit helpless. I see her pain. Uh, I see the frustration of the pain. I'll never fully understand the pain, but I'm standing there and I, I care about what's happening to her because I care about her. And so the point is, uh, because I care about her, I empathize with her pain and I don't judge her for her pain. Uh, and so for us, one of the healthiest ways that we've been able to process these things is through those genuine caring relationships with people who have experienced the pain of prejudice and racism. And the conversation for us has been so important, but it's really, really difficult to have healthy, healing conversation outside of caring relationships. And so, man, that's what we're praying for in our church is diverse, 
healthy, caring, healing conversation and relationship. So those kind of conversations about race in our country or in the church obviously can't just be about white and black, though there's obviously unique history there. There's also unique history, as well as present challenges when it comes to Asian Americans. We've mentioned this a few times, uh, even since COVID-19 began, and how Asian American racism has risen over the last couple of months. So James Park is a pastor at our Tyson's location, and we asked him and his wife, Esther, to describe how they have seen or experienced anti-Asian American bias and how they process that. So I invite you to listen to them. We grew up in predominantly Asian American communities most of our lives. So honestly, we have not thought about anti-Asian American bias as much as we should. However, uh, our moving to Northern Virginia to be part of a multi-ethnic church community, and what has happened recently with COVID has really opened our eyes to the reality of the anti-Asian American bias. From microaggressions to violence, we have seen this bias play out all across the country and even in our own lives. So for example, a few, few weeks ago when I was in line to check out groceries at a market, I saw this cashier smiling and talking in a noticeably friendly way with a, a white customer right in front of me. When it was my turn to check out, her face immediately changed and would not even look at me in the eye. Uh, she was visibly cold and distant, um, and I felt very self-conscious about my ethnicity. I felt the same way just last week when I was out in the airport. I couldn't help but notice that people were intentionally trying to avoid me or keep their distance. Uh, and when we were getting off the plane, like the flight attendants were greeting everyone goodbye. And when it came to my turn, like I said goodbye, but she would not even say anything. And also whenever I engage with my um, white coworkers or my boss at my workplace, I always feel the need to put on another self, whether it would be extra makeup or being extra assertive because of this preconceived notion that Asian American females are seen as more passive or submissive. And I realized that it's so easy to be dismissed or overlooked because of my ethnicity unless I put in that extra effort to look and sound or act more like white people instead of being confident in how I'm wired culturally and how God created me. So in all of our experiences, the message has been pretty clear is that you may try, but you, you are not one of us. We're realizing that no matter how hard we try to be fully accepted, we will perpetually be foreigners and outsiders. And seeing how easily our place in society has changed almost overnight, we realize that this is not just abnormal symptom caused by a virus, but a symptom of an underlying systemic bias which has been there all along. So we're still trying to process all of this together. I know it's not going to be easy, but we desire to work intentionally towards building a family made possible only by what Christ has done.
Well, it's not obviously not just African Americans, Asian Americans, but I also think about the unique challenges that Latin Americans face in our country. And uh, Gustavo Bacheco and his wife Sarah are constantly serving communities all across uh, the metro DC area. I'm telling y'all, you have no idea. Uh, this couple is so busy in so many different areas of life, but they have also uh, devoted their lives to serving uh, so many different kinds of people, including uh, so many different Latin American communities around the DC metropolitan area. So we asked them to share how they would describe the unique challenges that Latin Americans face in our country and even in our church. So listen to Gustavo and Sarah. My name is Gustavo Pacheco, and this is my wife, Sarah Pacheco. We have two adult children. So the U.S. Latino community is an ethnically diverse group with people tracing their origins to different Latin American countries. It is well known that the Latino community can face a number of misconceptions. For example, that all Latinos are criminals, undocumented, poor, uneducated, and the Latino immigrants are taking away jobs from Americans. All of these misconceptions could not be farther from the truth. From these misconceptions, racial prejudice can precipitate. A tight adherence to those false beliefs inspired killing of Latinos. 22 people were killed in El Paso, Texas last year. The shooter was focused on killing Latinos. It has been heartbreaking to see these misconceptions spread through churches. Apostle Paul teaches that the church is one body. For just as the body is one and has many members, therefore all ethnic groups, including Latinos, must be integrated into the local church for the sake of the gospel. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. The Latino community can be divided into first, second, third, and subsequent generations. Uh, each of these generations face different challenges. The first generation of Latinos may face difficulties in English proficiency, the comprehension of American culture, reduced education levels, limited employment opportunities, and immigration status. The challenges of second and later generations are centered around full integration into American society. While they may be American-born, they can be seen as immigrants or outsiders. In Selena, a biographical film about Mexican-American singer, Selena's father says, we have to be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans. So as the mother of two second-generation Latinos, we must make an effort to intentionally reach out to the second generation of Latinos and other second-generation communities. We hope that we have been able to highlight some opportunities for our church to grow in understanding and unity, to overcome racism, discrimination, and prejudice. Humility must be expressed by us all. I leave you with this final challenge from Philippians. Do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, we want to hear from one last perspective. 
uh, from our pastor uh, at our Prince William locations, the now infamous Todd from Todd Talks and his wife, Nancy. So many people, especially if you're listening in from outside NBC, you would not know that Todd, who's speaking to children week in and week out, is a retired Navy SEAL who served for 26 years in the military before becoming a pastor. And he is married to Nancy, who is Native American. So we asked Todd and Nancy to share how being married to someone of another ethnicity has helped them understand people from other ethnicities better. So listen to Todd and Nancy share. Hi, I'm a little nervous, so I'm gonna use my notes. Something you may not know about me is that I am Native American from the Choctaw Nation. My tribe's motto is faith, family, and culture. The culture part for me is mostly traditional Choctaw foods. Another interesting part about me is that I come from a long line of pastors and Bible teachers. My daddy was a Baptist preacher and my mom was a private duty nurse. She also taught Sunday school. Although being proud of our Choctaw heritage, my family taught me more about God's love, His Word, and to love others, which I continue to work on. As many of you know, marriage can reveal how selfish your heart is, but it's also an opportunity to learn from your spouse and their point of view. Being married to someone of another ethnicity can be humbling, and it can also be very rewarding. One of the things that my wife has taught me is to appreciate her point of view as a Native American. One example of many is looking at current events. I'll express to my wife how I see something, thinking that she'll agree with me, and then she gently reveals to me another point of view. I've come to treasure this, and there's no way that I would have seen what she has shared with me if I only approached it from my perspective. I continue to learn from my wife, and I want to be clear that it isn't always easy, but few things in life worth doing ever are. I don't know if many of you know that Todd and I met as teenagers, and one of the things I noticed about him then and now is his ability to listen. Growing up, listening wasn't something practiced in my home well. I've come to understand listening is important, and it is one of the ways we can show our love for God and to others. In closing, Nancy and I want to encourage you uh, with what we've learned from 34 years of dating and marriage. Uh, we have learned to listen to each other, uh, to respect one another, and to love each other. And we know that's not always easy, but we also know it's really important. You see, Jesus summarized all the law and the prophets in Matthew 22 by saying, love God and love others. And so we know that's a challenge for us, uh, but it's a challenge worth living up to. It's a challenge we wanna build our home on. And today, more than ever, uh, our homes, our church, need to display unity. There's one thing that brings us together, and that is the fact that we have hope in a risen Savior. So that's what we want to share with you today. May God bless you, and may He keep you. Man, I love our, our church family, and as we listen to these stories, listen, our goal isn't pity. Our goal is that as we learn from one another, that God the Holy Spirit would produce more unity in the midst of our diversity. Unity and diversity is something that God requires 
and it's something that we desire. And so as a church, we come from different places and perspectives and different backgrounds, but we want to dwell in unity. We want this church to be our house where all of God's people feel at home. And so how do we do that? Well, that leads us to a second truth here in Psalm 133 about unity and diversity. So that truth number one, just in case any of you are wondering, why, why are we talking about this? It's because God requires it and we desire it. Like true unity in diversity, something God requires, we desire. Second truth Unity and diversity. So how do we get this? It starts with the gospel in each of our lives and then springs from the gospel into all of life. That's another loaded statement. Let me show you what it means. So first, unity and diversity starts with the gospel in each of our lives. And I want to clarify what I mean by the gospel there. And I invite you to listen particularly close here if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but really, even if you are, because this is the crux of unity and diversity. It goes all the way back to the beginning of creation when you and I were created in God's image. All of us, no matter what skin color we may have, we are equally made in the image of God. Yet all of us, no matter what skin color we may have, have sinned against God. We've chosen our ways over God's ways. And our sin against God has separated us from God. And not just from God, but from each other. As soon as sin entered the world, it affected man and woman's relationship with God and with each other. So we see conflict, hatred, even murder coming right after the entrance of sin against God into the world. So our separation from each other, even conflict we have with each other, is ultimately a result of our separation from God, from sin in our lives. And the payment for sin, the Bible teaches, is death. It's eternal judgment and death. But the good news of the gospel is that God has not left us alone in this world of sin, separated from him and from each other, but God has come to us in the person of Jesus, who lived a life of no sin, and then, though he had no sin to die for, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Then he rose from the dead in victory over sin so that anyone, anywhere, of any color, ethnicity, background, anyone, anywhere who trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives, will be reconciled to relationship with God, restored to God for eternal life. So that's why I say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, listen in, particularly to, in particular to this, because today, like right now, based on God's word, you can be reconciled to God for eternal life. You can be forgiven of all your sin restored to relationship with the God who created you forever through faith in Jesus. I invite you to do that today if you have not done that in your life. And then to see, so what does all that then have to do with unity in the church? It has everything to do with unity in the church. And this is why the church can experience the truest kind of unity in diversity. Because through Jesus, we've been reconciled to relationship with God, which then opens wide the door for reconciliation with one another, for relationships with one another. 
Remember, we're in conflict with one another because of our sin, our separation from God. So when we're reconciled to God, restored to God, then the way is open for us to experience unity together in Jesus. Now you say, where are you getting that in Psalm 133? Like, I don't see Jesus' name anywhere. Well, let me show it to you. You gotta see this, verse two. So what is brothers and sisters dwelling with unity and diversity like? It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Like, what is that about? Out of all the pictures that this psalm could compare unity to, like, unity is like trees in a forest or like fish in the ocean or stars in the sky. There's so many pictures of unity in diversity. So why is it like oil coming down on Aaron's beard? The answer to that question is so good. Think about it. What brought all these people from diverse tribes to Jerusalem together before God? It was celebration at the tabernacle or the temple where they would offer sacrifices for their sin to reconcile them to God. And it was the priests represented by Aaron here who would offer those sacrifices. Exodus 30 talks about how this oil would be poured over the priest's head. It would run down onto his beard, all the way down onto his robes, which by the way, over his breastplate, you could find 12 stones representing all 12 tribes of Israel who were represented by the priest as he offered sacrifices on all of their behalf. So now it makes sense. Like the starting point for unity and diversity is forgiveness of sin before God. Reconciliation of relationship with God. And not just through Aaron or some other priest in the Old Testament in Jerusalem. Like if that was the case, then for you and I to experience unity, we would need to take a trip to Jerusalem together. We don't have to do that. You know why? Because a greater priest than Aaron has come. Jesus has come, has given himself, his life as a sacrifice on the cross so that you and I, with all of our differences, can be restored to God and to each other. The gospel, the good news of God's love in Jesus is the unique and powerful starting point for the most true and powerful kind of unity in diversity. This is something Jesus bought with his blood, unity in diversity for us as the church. That's why multi-ethnic community is worth pursuing. I mean, just hearing David share the beauty of the gospel, that is why multi-ethnic community is worth pursuing. It's messy, it's difficult, but listen, you just heard in these videos from a black pastor, a Korean American pastor, a Mexican American pastor, and a white pastor who's Scandinavian, Scottish, Irish, American. And we've all decided to be here in this church family because, listen, because we have a unique opportunity, not just to display the barrier-breaking power of the gospel, but also to experience it, to enjoy all the riches that different people from different backgrounds contribute to this family. But listen, in order for us to fully experience real gospel unity, the kind of unity that exalts Jesus. 
We have to be committed to what that unity requires. We're not just united for the sake of unity. We are united in Christ to do his work and to display his character in the world. That's why David said that our unity starts with the gospel, but then it has to spring from the gospel into the real issues of the world that we live in. So let me give you one example. In the U.S., there are more than 3,000 abortions every day. And let me pause here and say, if you've had or encouraged an abortion, listen, know that so many people in our church have experienced that too. And listen, here's what we know. There is grace for that. There's grace for that. You just heard David talk about the gospel, that Jesus brings forgiveness for our sin and you do not have to be condemned by your past. But it's important that we look at the reality. Between 1973 and 2018, there were close to 62 million abortions. Babies, not just embryos or globs of tissue, but babies are being intentionally killed and discarded every single day. And this isn't just tolerated as a necessary evil, but in some circles is even celebrated as a human right. Now imagine me responding to everything I just said about abortion with this. Why do we keep bringing that up? Abortion is complex. There's so many factors involved and the facts aren't always so cut and dry. Just preach the gospel and stay away from those political issues. See, most evangelical Christians would be appalled by that response and would emphatically argue against it. And rightfully so. Why? Because we know that injustice requires more than merely preaching the gospel. In fact, our preaching rings hollow and hypocritical if it doesn't compel us to action. Lives are at stake and we are, if we're gonna, if we're gonna protect human life, then listen, listen, our doctrinal convictions require us to pursue practical solutions and sometimes even political solutions. But often when issues of racial justice are raised by people in the church, the response is just preach the gospel and stop being so divisive. But that's not true gospel unity. When, when issues of racial justice are raised, often appeals to gospel unity are used as a way to silence the voices that make us uncomfortable or challenge the status quo. But again, that's not true gospel unity. In fact, it undermines gospel unity, not only because it disregards diverse perspectives, but because it disregards divine imperatives. It disregards what God himself has said to us about justice and about loving your neighbor. So let me give you two quick uh, historical examples. George Whitfield was a prominent uh, evangelist in the 1700s. He's known as one of the founders of the evangelical movement. And I've personally read and benefited from his biographies, like over 1,600 pages of his biographies and benefited from his sermons. George Whitfield was a prolific proclaimer of the gospel, but he was also instrumental in advocating for slavery in Georgia. And you know why? 
Well, I have his own words from a letter he wrote on March 22nd, 1751. I won't take the time to read it, but the short version is this. He argued that the Georgia economy would suffer if they didn't use slaves. And he said white people were too fair-skinned to work the fields in the hot Georgia sun. While Africans were being enslaved, he just preached the gospel. And injustice flourished unchallenged. Let me give you another quick example. Billy Sunday. So we're fast forwarding now. Billy Sunday was the most prominent evangelist of the early, uh, early 20th century. He was the precursor to Billy Graham. And in 1918, he held a massive evangelistic crusade right here in Washington, D.C. It was for whites only because of segregation at the time. And well, Francis Grimke, he was a black pastor of a church here in D.C. And after Billy Sunday's crusade was over, Grimke preached a message at his church in March of 1918. Now, sidebar, he, he pastored during the influenza pandemic of 1918. And it's fascinating to read his sermon on that first day his church was able to gather together again. We've been here before, y'all. We'll make it through. Right? But in March of 1918, Francis Grimke preached a message, and in it, he criticized, to, to, to put it mildly, he criticized Billy Sunday for addressing sin and preaching the gospel, but for refusing to confront racism. And listen to what Grimke said. March 1918, he, said, he wrote these words. He said, racial prejudice is the one subject that he always studiously avoids. Always is careful never to relate to Christianity, as if the religion of Jesus Christ had nothing to do with it, was in no way concerned with it. The religion which he, Mr. Sunday, represents may not be concerned about it, but Christianity, the religion of Jesus Christ, is and always will be. However, he and others like him may shut their eyes to the fact. Is it not strange that all other sins should be related to Christianity, should be brought under its condemnation, and that this darling sin, which so many are rolling under their tongues as a sweet morsel, should alone be allowed to escape? Now notice, Pastor Grimke was not accusing Billy Sunday personally of racism, he was accusing Billy Sunday of ignoring racism. While African-Americans were suffering under Jim Crow, he just preached the gospel and injustice flourished unchallenged. See, it's not just enough to not be racist. As gospel people, we have to be united together in our commitment to fight racism and all other forms of injustice. In a divided world, true gospel unity requires us to actively work for the flourishing of all people. This is exactly what we're seeing in Psalm 133. So remember we said, Mike mentioned uh, this second truth, unity and diversity, starts with the gospel in each of our lives and springs from the gospel into all of life. Look at Psalm 133, verse three. Talking about another comparison, unity and diversity, brothers dwelling in unity, is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So Hermon was a high mountain, about 10,000 feet, Zion was a smaller mountain, about a quarter of the size, and that's where Jerusalem was. So the picture here is God's blessing, 
Unity and diversity is like God's blessing falling all over the land where God's people dwell in unity. For there, so what is there referring to? Well, it could either refer to Jerusalem in Zion or it could refer to where brothers dwell in unity. I think that kind of both are the point because the people of God experienced unity as they offered sacrifices together in Jerusalem But then they left Jerusalem and as they went back to their homes, they wanted and God even required for that unity to carry over into life in all of the land. Which is why the psalm ends saying, the Lord has commanded there among his people the blessing life forevermore. So the picture here is the gospel, God's grace Sacrifice for our sin creates a unity that doesn't just stop when we're gathered together to worship Jesus. This gospel creates a unity that affects the way we live every single day. We live with unity and diversity in all the ways that God calls us to live and to love. The Great Commission is an example of this. We go together in unity to make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnicities together. That's why we say the Great Commission to each other every single week because we're one body united on mission. And then think about all the other things we do together based on God's word in every area of life. Mike mentioned, like, yes, we work together for the unborn and we work together for the poor. And we work together on behalf of the oppressed and the marginalized and the refugee and all victims of racial injustice based on God's word that affects all of life such that when we then hear stories of racial injustice, we stop and we listen and we say, We're the body of Christ together. There's no welcome guest here. All of us at home here. We listen to one another. We lament with one another. And we labor alongside one another to see the truths of the gospel play out in all of life and ultimately in our life together. Because we know this is where the Lord himself, our God, has commanded the blessing life forevermore. And we want to live as a church in the fullness of that blessing. And so what does it mean for us to move forward together in unity as a diverse church? What can we practically do to experience more unity in the midst of the diversity that God has blessed us with? Well, honestly, I think to begin with, it means just continuing to do much of what we've already been doing. Church family, by God's grace, our church has continued to grow, not just in being more diverse, but also in expressing that diversity in beautiful and authentic ways. I have been privileged to be in this church for 13 years, and I am so thankful and blessed for the work that God has continued to do. We are faithfully working on behalf of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed in so many ways through the ministries of our church, but also through the individual careers and community involvement represented by so many of you who are watching. 
But here are five quick things I'd encourage you to do. You can write these down or come back to it later because I'm going to fly through them. Here's number one. I want to encourage you to take these practical steps. One, process these three questions in your own personal reflection time. Three simple questions. As you think about this message, what was helpful, what was encouraging, what was frustrating? Number two. Process those same three questions with some people from different backgrounds from you. What was helpful in this message? What was encouraging? What was frustrating? Number three, I want to recommend that you read one of or both of these two books, Divided by Faith by Christian Smith and Michael Emerson and The Elusive Dream by Dr. Corey Edwards. Both of those are research-based books written by Christian authors, and they'll better help you understand why race and justice issues make unity and diversity hard to live out. Number four, take time to learn about a justice issue that you may not be as familiar with or you may even be skeptical about. And here's the key. Try to learn about that issue from the perspective of people that are most affected by it. I've spent a lot of time over the past couple years learning about Asian American history and the unique challenges they've had to face in American culture because I wasn't familiar with it. I was ignorant about it. But there's lots of justice issues you could learn about. Immigration, criminal justice reform, gun violence, abortion. Be open to how God might want you to respond. And here's number five. Pray for our church. Or if you're watching and you're a part of another church, pray for your church. Pray that God would give us the grace and the perseverance to continue striving to become more unified in our diversity. So with that, I want to lead us into a time of prayer. So would you just bow your heads with me? right where you're sitting and you bow your head and close your eyes uh, just a, a moment to pause wherever you are right now and let me just ask you the most important question like have you experienced reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus do you have relationship with God right now such that you know that if you were to die today, you would have eternal life with God because you've trusted in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. You're following Jesus, walking with God. And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I want to invite you just where you're sitting right now just to pray to God and to say, God, I know I have sinned against you, that I am separated from you, but today I put my faith in Jesus and what he has done on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and restore me to relationship with you. That I might experience life forevermore. God, I pray that people would express that in their hearts. 
right now and be reconciled to you right now. And God, we pray that this reconciliation to you, this restoration to relationship with you would create a powerful picture of reconciliation with one another and restoration of relationship with one another. And not, not just for each other's sake, but for the spread of the gospel and your glory and your character and all the ways we've seen your goodness, your love, your justice in the world around us. God, we want, we want to experience unity and diversity like we see in Psalm 133. We want to experience this good, pleasant unity and diversity. So help us, God, we pray, form us by your spirit as your church. Unity of, around your spirit, your son, bond of peace that creates a powerful picture of the gospel in the world and motivates us to action in a Micah 6, 8 kind of way to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you. Oh God, please, please, please help us to be the church you've called us to be in the time and place you have put us in. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to download this sermon or watch the video or even grab the free discussion questions that accompany every sermon, you can do that at our website, radical.net. And while you're there, check out the interview, Pastoring in the Midst of a Pandemic, where the Director of Discipleship at Radical, Jeff Lewis, asked David Platt a number of questions aimed at helping pastors think through how they can keep the church's mission, continue making disciples of all nations, during these difficult days. You can watch that video right from the homepage at Radical.net. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us there at Radical.net.